I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is my show. My friends come on and you know them. We talk about the sports you care about, basketball now, golf and the metronome of your life, baseball. Whether it's opening day, the big tournament, or one of the majors, we have the best to preview it and break down just what happened. And let's not forget the important stuff, the amount of daylight where I live, the importance of speedies, and the rankings of beach-style pizza. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. It is now 8.07 here at WCCO. Welcome. Welcome back, everyone. I am excited about this half hour. You know, it has been... Nearly 50 years since women finally won the right to take control of their reproductive rights and struck down Texas abortion ban as unconstitutional. Now, that was in 1973 with Roe v. Wade. Now in Texas, it has all turned around again. So what is happening with their abortion laws and how will it affect us here in Minnesota? In fact, how will it affect the rest of the country? Well, Dr. Sarah Traxler is the Chief Medical Officer for Planned Parenthood, North Central, which covers Iowa, Nebraska, North and South Dakota, along with Minnesota. She is one of the nation's leading medical experts in reproductive health. Welcome, Dr. Sarah Traxler. So great to have you join us tonight. Thank you so so much, Geraldine. It's really nice to be on. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. It appears that Texas has spent so much time trying to take away what was given to us in 1973, and I don't quite understand why they are so obsessed with women's rights to do what we want to do with our bodies. I have to be honest with you. I'm not really sure why they're so obsessed with it either. (laughs) I really feel like whether or not to be a parent is a personal decision and really shouldn't be a decision made by politicians. Yeah, I don't understand why they um, they keep thinking that they should they should do this. We should be the ones to make sure that we're making the right decisions for ourselves and only we can make those decisions. But now that Texas has done this, are you expecting this to kind of spread from the West all the way to the East? Well, I hope not. I think, you know, this is such an extreme law that we know that it's unconstitutional, but they designed it in a way that there's this vigilante aspect to it. So it's the citizens who can, yes, they get a bounty for um, finding someone who helped the woman in Texas have an abortion. And, you know, while I feel like it's so extreme and callous, I can imagine that there might be other states that would piggyback and make copycat laws. I do. I'm worried yeah. about that. I am too. And I, I can't understand why we want to go back so far. It sounds as though we're going back to the 1800s, you know, <laughs> or further. I don't right, quite exactly. get it. So, um, so our laws here in Minnesota, are we threatened because of what has happened in Texas? Well, no, not currently. You know, abortion is protected by the state constitution in Minnesota, and we should be really happy about that because it helps protect us in a way. But I think, you know, we do see every legislative session, even in Minnesota, there are restrictions to abortion that they, that, you know, certain people try to get past every legislative session. And so, you know, it's, it's, while we can kind of consider Minnesota a haven for abortion access for women, we are almost we could be one, you know, election cycle away from a law like this going into effect. Wasn't it about 10 years ago, a decade ago, where they were closing down every 
um, place where you could get an abortion in the country, particularly between Minnesota and Missouri and all these states in this in the in the middle um, and central. And I keep saying to myself, why is it that this keeps happening? Do you remember when they were closing all of the the opportunities for women to go to these, you know, these places to have it done legally, and they I were did. closing them down. How long ago was that? I Not do. that far, right? Well, I know that they were um, trying to close down clinics because we have, you know, there are these things called trap laws, which are based on these kind of um, major restrictions and how abortion is provided. It requires you to have like an ambulatory surgical center. It requires a 24 hour waiting period. It, you know, there are all of these restrictions that they've put around it. And some of those were just too much for some abortion providers to be able to you know, comply with. And so lots of places were shut down because they just didn't have the resources to comply with some of these laws, these ridiculous laws. Do you believe that what happened in 1973 uh, to Texas, you know, they weren't successful at what they were trying to do, and now they have been. Do you think they've been using all this time to try to turn this over because they are mad about it? They were angry. They thought, we're going to do this until, and then what? Are they going to wake up one day and think, wow, that was dumb. We shouldn't have done that. Please tell me yes. (laughs) I hope so. I really hope so. You know, I think one of the reasons when we look back at the history of abortion access, One of the biggest reasons why Roe v. Wade came about is because there were all of these women who were dying because, as we all know, because just because you pass laws against abortion does not mean it goes away. People find other ways to end a pregnancy. And uh, back in the 70s, they were really unsafe when people were trying to manage their own abortions or going to places where it wasn't safe. And there were faith leaders, there were doctors, there were healthcare providers and politicians coming together to say, this has to be legal now because people were dying. And so I think, I hope, I really hope we don't get there again because it was a dark time in women's reproductive rights and the history of healthcare. And I'm, I'm really hopeful that we don't get back there again because that, that's what it took then. And I hope that's not what it takes now. But it's it's been happening so long, doctor. We can go all the way back to the Egyptian women. You know, they would they would eat an herb, I believe it was an herb that would uh, help them release the child. You know, the the little embryo. And I don't understand why it keeps happening. And they, especially in our country, where they want us to just stop. Are we seeing this around the world? Hearing that more and more countries are looking at this in a different way and thinking maybe we should eradicate. Abortions? No, actually, you know, one of the places in the world that we've seen abortion access increase over the last several years is Central and South America, traditionally Catholic anti-choice countries. And they're actually passing laws in the last five years to make abortion legal. So, no, we're not actually seeing this around other parts of the world. And, and that's what that's one of the scariest parts is that we're moving backwards while everybody else is moving forward. So let's just say we're trying to move forward and there's this small constituency that does not want to move forward, like Texas, parts of Texas. And believe me, there are women, you and I, what, what? So what do you do? 
That's the question we like to ask because it's important. That's the bottom line. It is truly important. Um, I, this all started when I went into the Fauché building one time, and there was an ambassador from a country I didn't even know existed. And I started researching the country, and I started looking up the ambassador, and I thought, why does this particular country have a, an office uh, for the ambassador here in the Fauché Towers? That's what led me to this whole thing about, so what do you do? So when we find a way to find other people or we see a name of something on a marquee or inside of a building or you know how you go to those industrial parks and you see all of these names of building go what is that what does it mean that's what we do thanks so much to jimmy erickson and jonathan Lowe. so what do we do tonight we're inviting angela dawson to come on and talk about what it is that she does she is the co-founder and president of 40 acre co-op soon as I saw that, I went, whoa, I have to know. <laughs> it's a nifty little area in Sandstone, and she's going to tell us all about it. Welcome, Angela. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Geraldine. It's great to have you. Okay, so 40 Acre Co-op, what is it and why does it exist? So 40 Acre Co-op is a cooperative of farmers who have gotten together to disrupt the old old racist system in agriculture. It's a is the straight line to it. But basically the name 40 Acre Cooperative is in honor of the 40 acres and a mule that was once promised to uh, the emancipated slaves once uh, the end of the Civil War was over. And the 40 acres and the mule was uh, promised to emancipated slaves as they resettled back into their free lives. And those 40 acres, uh, as soon as a couple of them started settling, Abraham Lincoln, as you know, the story goes, he was assassinated. There was a new administration, and all of the uh, all of the settlers were removed from their 40 acres. And I'd like to say that and remind everyone that, for the most part, black folks have been unstable in housing in America ever since. Wow, we're talking about reparations here. And so you call it 40 Acres Cooperative. And um, knowing that, and you're talking about uh, farmers as well as black farmers that are working together, are we talking about black and white working together for reparations? Well, we're talking about basically working together for black farmers to receive equity in agriculture. What most people don't know is that I'm a fourth-generation reclamation farmer, and what that basically means is that two or three generations ago, most black farmers have been intentionally removed from their farming land and from the farming occupation due to the way that the USDA is set up. It's basically taken about 90 95% of USDA funding for farmers and has redirected it mostly to white corporate farmers, leaving a lot of poor white farmers and specifically black farmers with nothing. Wow. So you they turn around and just disadvantage those um, who are trying to do the right thing. So how is it that 40 Acre is the one that's going to make the difference? Well, we have organized, uh, about three years ago, we started organizing and just getting farmers together to start talking about everyday farmers, the ones who feed communities, that feed neighborhoods, and that feed ourselves. And we started talking about what is it that we need in order for us to be sustainable on the land. If we're not going to get funding from the traditional farming credit resources, how can we get together, pull our money, our knowledge, and our resources together to meet those needs ourselves? And and we've been doing quite a good job. We have uh, We have over 30 members in seven states. We have a waiting list 
of 250 farmer members that would like to join, and we're growing every single day. That is remarkable. First of all, congratulations. I think what you're doing really matters. Uh, What are you hearing from the black community all over the country? Well, I'm hearing just an an extreme need. So our waiting list, like I said, is over 250 people. That means there's 250 farmers, farm families that need the resources and that need the support of a cooperative like ours that aren't getting that help anywhere else. And they're basically on our waiting list waiting for us to be able to serve them. So we know that the need is definitely there. And thankfully, we are also getting a good response in some ways from some of the USDA offices and also from other white farmers who understand how egregious this uh, loss has been for black farmers over the last century. Yeah, and I think I really wanted to know what the black communities are saying about this. Do we know enough about this? Um, Are we getting the word out about 40 Acres Co-op, or are we just sitting back and just hearing about it here and there? That's what my concern is. If the black community is completely involved and the other communities that they're working with, I think then we can really spread the word and get involved. I think you're right, Gerilyn. I mean, the black farmers are really more so concerned, but I don't think that the black community really understands how important it is for them to keep black farmers in business and on the land and how important it is for everyday survival of even black community members, even if you're not on a farm and you live in a city, the the survival of black farmers on the land is really important to communities everywhere. So why do they do? Why do they keep doing what they're doing? Is it, is it the love of farming? Is it a, a tradition of, you know, that the family did, that the gen- generations before them did? Well, I'll tell you, I was in my second year of law school when I decided to get back into farming and to reclaim my family's farming legacy. And I'll have to say, too, that, you know, I, my great-great-great-grandfather was a farmer in Georgia, and he purchased his freedom through farming. And he made a living for his children and his grandchildren up until uh, the early 1900s through farming. So it is a passion of mine. And I do believe that it was it's a gift from our ancestors. And, you know, also what the pandemic has taught us is that the food system and the grocery stores are not so stable. And there are times where we're going to need to learn how to grow foods ourselves and learn how to live off the land ourselves the way that our ancestors did. But using 21st century technology and the knowledge and the wisdom that we have now, we can do even better than what our ancestors have done. You know, big agriculture is huge, right? It's a huge business. And, of course, you have the seed bank uh, in Norway, I believe it is. And, um, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are countries that have to go to the seed bank and pay to get the seed so that they can grow crop. Um, Are you hearing anything like that um, here in the United States when it comes to the farmers? Do they know about it? Do they say that's not what we want? Those are not the kind of seeds we want. What I mean, is that a conversation that has been had? Well, seeds are really important to black farmers because there actually was a class action lawsuit against an Iowa seed company called the Stein Seed Company back about 10 years ago where a group of uh, black farmers had claimed, um, and they still are claiming, that the Stein Seed Company had given black farmers intentionally inferior seeds and so that their crops would be less productive than other farmers. And so 40 Acre Co-op's answer to that is that we actually have created our own seed and our own strain of industrial hemp 
for the market. And it's for that very reason that we want to be able to own and control our own uh, our own productivity all the way from seed to shelf. And that's why it's important for us to know uh, and, and to support black farmers around the country, especially here in Minnesota. That's remarkable. I'm so glad that you mentioned uh, hemp because that was the seed that was like the number one seed at one time here in America. You know, it, you can make clothes, food, everything, medicine from hemp, right? And so now we're we're buying all of these products and people are saying, wow, look at this hemp. But this is what you've known for a long time. So I'm really excited that you decided to go in that direction. Um, growing those seeds, what do you intend to do with it? Just sell it uh, for different reasons or tell me, tell yeah, me what so- you expect. Yeah, so we took about two years. Over over the last two years, we took our time to develop a high-quality seed. Our number one reason for doing this is obviously to have it available for the black farmers that need it and for the farmers in our network who need it. But also we want to improve the quality of hemp that's on the market because it has been illegal for so long. We have a lot of uh, variety and a wide range of really poor quality hemp that people are using uh, for personal uses. And we really feel like uh, hemp needs to be accessible to the community, especially the black community. It has so many healing purposes. You mentioned some of it, but there's actually 25,000 at least documented uses of hemp. And so, (laughs) yes, we want to spread that access so that our community can benefit from it as well. So you are succeeding in this business. This is incredible. Um, this is in northern Minnesota. Is that correct? We're in northern Minnesota. We're in Pine County, uh, about 80% white. Uh, my great-grandparents have come up to northern Minnesota for many years and started uh, doing black resort journeys up here in the 50s and the 60s. And, and I'm just so proud to be able to say that, you know, I purchased land in this community and that I own my own piece of property here now. That's so wonderful. It's just wonderful. Um, I hope that you will have a team of people, including yourself, that will go into the schools all over the country and really teach children about what these farmers are doing. I think it's important that they know they need to know the history of farming with uh, African-Americans and to know that they have had partnerships along the way. So thank you so much. I'm so grateful that uh, my producer was able to find 40 Acre Co-op. And I do hope to have you on again as maybe in a couple of years to see where you're moving and where you're going, and I, I, I can just imagine expansion is on your mind. Absolutely, Gerilyn, and you can always come up for a visit and see for yourself. I think you'd really enjoy it. I think I will. I'd love to bring my granddaughters. That would just be awesome. I'll get more information. In fact, if people want more information, where do they go? They go to www.40acres.coop. That's F-O-R-T-Y-A-C-R-E dot c-o-o-p okay so uh, yeah we have the wrong one we had a 40 acre coop or co-op uh, dot yeah. u.s so it's not the dot u.s at the end there's both both of them are active but the dot co-op is the most updated okay really appreciate you joining us so enjoyed this conversation angela really quite remarkable thank you thank you so much i love your show thank you Thank you. All right, we're going to take a break and come back and uh, kind of wrap up what we've been talking about for the last two hours, and then Center Stage will be after that. This is Tony Kornheiser's show. I'm Tony. We expected someone else. 
So what exactly is the show about? Hmm, I don't know. It's a sports show nominally. Football's over, but we're finally at a point where things matter in college basketball. And baseball season is on deck. Greatest three words in the English language, pitchers and catchers. We have some of the best voices come on and explain what matters or what makes an upset, like Ryan does. <laughs> Nine over eight. No, that's not an upset. No, yeah, it is, Bob. And if you're lucky, I might just tell you about my search for discounted sleep pants or my worries about what my dog just ate. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, my gosh. I am so grateful that I had a chance to meet the woman who started 40 Acre Cooperative. Um, it's really quite remarkable. If you go to their website, which, again, is 40, F-O-R-T-Y, Acre, A-C-R-E, dot co-op, which is C-O-O-P. I think you will be surprised at what you what you see there. They have built this new cooperative on ESG principles. Um, I don't know what ESG means, but it says ESG principles is evidenced by our commitments to organic farming, okay, and processing practices. Uh, their mission is to lift up farmers of color from historically socially underserved communities. Uh, they will work directly with um, the co-op members through educational programs by providing resources and connections to expertise and forming a proactive community where access to knowledge and business success is a daily reality. Knowledge is so important. Oh, my goodness. By the way, ESG yes. stands for Environmental, Social, Social. and, gov- and government, yeah. Governance, governance yep. Criteria. Thank you very much. And so do you, can you name some of those principles? Uh, no clue. Okay, thank you. All right, I should. I'm looking that. it up on the Google you know on the that? Google machine. On the Google, it's the Google. I looked, I looked it the up. The power on the of the machine. Google, man, it's the power of the Google. You know, you can also donate. Uh, by the way, Jonathan, if you because this is really fascinating to me, I want to find out a way to help in some in some way, and and um, I, I am just blown away by this whole thing. But you can donate. You can go on their website, and there's a place down. In the middle, I think, where you can just hit donate and it comes up. It shows how much you can, you know, feel free to donate as much as you want. You can do one time, a one time donation, a weekly donation, a monthly, a quarterly donation. You know, so they're really putting it out there. They need the help. There's no doubt about it. And it talks about how their mission of promoting agricultural development as well as economic equity for socially disadvantaged farmers. That's a big deal. Equity, of course, we've been talking about it for years now, and a lot of people know what it means to, you know, um, to have equity, not just equality, but to have equity. Um, and so I'm really excited that they're doing this. I want to go up there. I want to see it. How about you, Jonathan? Would you ever drive up there to see it? I should. I don't know if I will, but I should because um, my grandparents were uh, big into farming. They grew up, yeah. you know, in, in Arkansas, and they uh, had farms when they were growing up. And when they moved to Kansas City, one of the things that my grandfather wanted to do, especially, was he wanted to find a place where he could get some land so he could uh grow his own vegetables grow his own uh items and so and was he able to do that yes so there they lived at the bottom of it wasn't a hill necessarily but but they lived at, at the bottom of this this uh uh hilly street and then up the street they had another lot where they grew all these different kinds of vegetables they grew uh peas and um okra and 
tomatoes and so many other different things, and then they ended up uh, planting pecan trees for each of us grandchildren. You know, they yeah. they do one for each grandchild, and so uh, they they held that until they passed, and then we had it in the family for a few more years after that. But they they would go up there and they loved it. They loved doing that, and unfortunately didn't <laughs> didn't pass on to me. But I understand the importance of that from the community of of black folks, especially a lot of people migrating north. It's it's not like we I came was just to this about to say that I and, was just about came, to say that and came to New York and Chicago and Minneapolis and Seattle and Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. A lot of us came in through the South. That's right, and of course, uh, most of the families that I know, even here in Minneapolis, they can tell you about the farming that their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents did, uh, and a lot of it is documented um, for some of those families, so I'm just so happy to hear that it's continuing. You know, my parents, uh, we had a very large backyard um, at our home in Gary, Indiana, and they grew everything, and they taught us how to grow it, they taught us how to how to pack it and and preserve it and you name it. You know, long before strawberries were not available, you know, back then in the wintertime. Now they're available all year long. But there was a time you had to hit those preserves, man, and make sure you had some jelly or something like that, you know, um, for the winter. And we, I learned how to, how to uh, grow vegetables and grow watermelons. And, you know, it was a beautiful garden. It was just huge and it was just beautiful. Um, I have not had my own garden since. My mother has had a garden for many, many years. Uh, she finally stopped about, oh, 2014 maybe. Um, and she doesn't have one here at her home, but, um, that was something they did always. And it was really fan. Fantastic. So those that uh, are listening tonight, if you hadn't heard of this, uh, I hadn't heard of it at all. And I'm so excited that it was a part of So What Do You Do? It's an important piece of history, and I do hope it will always continue. I hope that more and more farmers will get involved and get it done. Get involved, get involved, get involved. I got to go up there. I have to, I got to grab my children and say, let's all go just to see it. And and the pictures that are on the website are really quite Beautiful of the farming that they're doing up there, and God bless them. And she bought her own land. She bought her own land. Oh, just amazing. So many African Americans can't do that today. But I'm really grateful to hear about this incredible woman who joined us tonight. All right, coming up next, of course, is all, all things arts and entertainment. We just want to make sure that you that you know all about it. So stay tuned. It's well worth the wait. We've got some really great guests coming up and uh, some that I have never heard of, like Andre Venter. You ever heard of him? He's from South Africa. He's going to be our first guest. Yeah, South Africa. He's going to be our first guest here in Center Stage. And then, of course, the 11 o'clock hour is all about the mom and Michael hour with my son, Michael Battle, joining us. I'm sorry, 10 o'clock, not 11 o'clock. The show is done by 11. <laughs> all right, stay tuned. We'll be right back. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. 
Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is my show. My friends come on and you know them. We talk about the sports you care about, basketball now, golf, and the metronome of your life, baseball. Whether it's opening day, the big tournament, or one of the majors, we have the best to preview it and break down just what happened. And let's not forget the important stuff, the amount of daylight where I live, the importance of speedies, and the rankings of beach-style pizza. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.